You're listening to Practical Ethics Bites with me, Nigel Warburton. And me, David Edmonds. Practical Ethics Bites is made in association with Oxford's Uhiro Centre for Practical Ethics. There are various approaches philosophers take to ethics. There are those who call themselves consequentialists. There are others who describe themselves as deontologists and who argue that it's not merely the consequences of actions that matter. As Roger Crisp explains, another approach, usually regarded as distinct from both consequentialism and deontology, is virtue ethics. Roger Crisp, welcome to Practical Ethics Bites. Thanks very much, Nigel. It's a pleasure to be here. The topic we're going to focus on is virtue ethics. Now, there's a widespread view that there are three main types of ethical theory, and virtue ethics is one of them. Yeah, so here's the way people normally map the terrain at the moment. Until recently, philosophy was dominated really by two kinds of theory. The first one would be consequentialism, which says that you should bring about the best consequences, bring about the best state of affairs. So, for example, you might lie, and there's nothing wrong with that if it brings about the best state of affairs. Second view would be a theory some people call deontology, from the Greek deon, which means one must. And that theory tends to say, actually, it's not just states of affairs or consequences that matter. There are certain properties of actions which make them wrong in themselves. For example, if an action is a a lie, that might be said to make it wrong. And then there are certain rules which you can set down telling people which actions are right and which are wrong. Then in 1958, a philosopher called Elizabeth Anscombe wrote an article called Modern Moral Philosophy in which she criticised these two strands of theory. And some of the things she said led people to start talking about something new, which was virtue ethics. So what's distinctive about virtue ethics? Well, I think the idea is that the first two theories have given us some idea of how to decide what the right action is. Virtue ethics says the way to do it is to think about what the virtuous person would do in the circumstances that you're in. Well, that's okay, but what's a virtuous person? (laughs) Well, what I've given you there is the framework for the theory. And one of the accusations that many have made against virtue ethics is that it's empty because we now need to know what the virtuous person would do. But of course, any virtue ethicist is going to come up with an account of what the virtuous person is like. So if you look at Aristotle's book, The Nicomachean Ethics, I guess the most authoritative and influential account of virtue ethics... A lot of that book is actually just taken up with descriptions of particular virtues and the lives of people who have them. I suppose we also need to say what a virtue is. Yes, and Aristotle has an account of that, which I think is very plausible. According to him, a virtue is a disposition, in Greek a hexis, a disposition to do certain actions and a disposition to feel certain feelings. But it's not just that. It's a disposition to do these actions at the right time, towards the right people, in the right way, for the right reasons, and so on. And this is his so-called doctrine of the mean. So a virtue is a character trait? Yes, a virtue is a character trait that you acquire, really as a child, through being told by your teachers to do certain actions. So, for example, you'll often see in supermarkets parents giving small change to their children to put into charity boxes in the supermarket. What they're doing there is encouraging generosity in their children. The children do it because they think it's fun, but the idea is if they become habituated as they get older, they'll work out that actually in many cases there are good reasons to give money to charities. 
And you mentioned that this is known as the doctrine of the mean, not mean in the, in the, in the miserly sense, but how is um, being charitable an example of a virtue that exemplifies the mean? I think Aristotle is really onto something with this. What he's noticed is that human life can be separated into different spheres and that within these spheres there are certain ways of going right or wrong. So, for example, we're talking about the control of money here. Pretty well everybody in their life at some point will have some money and if they're going to be virtuous they have to give that money away, they have to spend that money, dispose of that money in the right way. And doing it in the right way is a mean. Well, how is it a mean? It's a mean between wastefulness, which is giving away money at the wrong time to the wrong people in the wrong way for the wrong reasons, and stinginess or meanness, which is not giving away money at the right time and so on. And the horrible truth, which Aristotle actually points out in his discussion of generosity, is that many people have both vices. There are people who will give their money away, buy too many rounds of drinks in the pub when they shouldn't, so they're wasteful, and then when somebody comes around collecting for some worthwhile charity, they've got none left. So that makes them mean as well. Are there any other examples of virtues that are particularly persuasive in Aristotle's writing? Well, let's take courage, which is a central virtue for him, partly because the city-states that he knew about were, were under constant threat. So you needed people to be courageous and ready to fight the enemy. And he talks about courage mainly in the context of battle. Now, what he's noticed there is that fear is a universal human emotion and there will be a virtue governing the feeling of fear. So the virtuous person will be the person who feels fear in the right way, in the right circumstances and so on, and acts in the light of that feeling. So it's kind of OK for you to feel afraid when you see the Persian line advancing on you with very big swords. That's uh, reasonable. But what you shouldn't do is run away. That would be cowardly. I shouldn't run away. That would be cowardice. And bravery would be doing my duty and fighting. But what's the extreme that I should avoid? Well, the excess would be not feeling any fear or not feeling enough fear when you should. And that is probably going to lead you to doing reckless actions, like running into the Persian line when there's no good reason for doing so. So I understand what Aristotle means by virtue. It's this sense of the way that we've been brought up allows us to feel and act in ways which are, as it were, good for us in some ways because we're doing the right thing. But I know that happiness has an important part to play, what he calls eudaimonia. What's that? Well, I think happiness is a reasonably good translation of that, but we have to bear in mind he's not talking just about feelings of contentment, feeling happy. He's talking about the happy life. And the challenge for philosophers, which was really set by Socrates and taken up by Plato and then Aristotle is to show, if possible, how you don't have to choose between the happy life and the morally good or the virtuous life. And Aristotle really runs with that idea. As far as I can tell, there's nowhere in the very large amount of Aristotelian texts that we have remaining in which he recommends doing something which would make your life go worse for you. There's no case of self-sacrifice in Aristotelian ethics. Happiness and virtue line up completely. So Aristotle is different, then there's something unusual about Aristotle in that he's saying that the good life coincides with the happy life. Yeah, I mean, it's quite remarkable. If you want to have a look at the most extreme statement of this, it's in Chapter 8 of Book 9 of The Ethics, where he says the virtuous person may well die on the battlefield for his friends. It's always his, unfortunately. But this is no sacrifice 
because he is awarding himself the greater share of the noble. And the noble is the highest good. So you couldn't gain anything by being cowardly in a battle. You'd be making your life worse, even if it went on for much longer. I think we should say a little bit more about what Aristotle means by happiness here, because it's not quite the same as what I would usually mean by happiness. It's not about a frisson, a psychological buzz, as it were. No, it's not just that, but I mean, you can have psychological buzzes in your life. They're part of it. And he's careful to point out against the hedonists, who were one of his main opponents, he's careful to point out that his virtuous life will involve pleasure. But it's the pleasure of being virtuous. So the virtuous person is the person who enjoys their virtuous activity. And of course, that gets him into a bit of trouble with things like courage, where you're feeling fear. So he really needs to be quite careful to say that it's not that the virtuous person is enjoying being hacked up by the Persians. What he's enjoying is being courageous. He probably really hates being hacked up by the Persians. And that enjoyment in acting virtuously is the result of this appropriate moral education. Yeah, I think that's right. But because he really doesn't want the vicious person to have anything in their life which is worth having, so the vicious person has to be living an unhappy life, he at various times tries to show that the only thing really worth having is virtue. So if you take, for example, bodily pleasure... You might think Aristotle is recommending a kind of well-rounded life in which you can go into a restaurant and have a nice meal and be moderate and that enjoying the meal is worth having. Strictly speaking, I think he doesn't want to say that because vicious people can enjoy having meals in restaurants and they might think that makes their lives better. He really wants to say the only thing worth enjoying in a restaurant is being moderate, which is very bizarre. Something else that is unusual in Aristotle's approach to happiness is the idea that things that happen after your death can affect whether your life was one which was happy. That's right, and that seems very bizarre to people who think that it's just conscious states that make your life good or bad, that somehow you could be affected by what happens after your death. But as often in Aristotle, he's quite careful about this. I mean, he realises that there are two extremes. There's one view according to which it could make a huge difference what happens after you die. And there's another view, according to which it doesn't make any difference. And he says, well, it might make a bit of difference if your children turn out really badly. That could make a life which had looked as if it was going to be happy into a life that is not happy. But it won't make that life unhappy, because an unhappy life would be a vicious life. And your children turning out badly is not enough to make your life a vicious one. We've talked quite a lot about the virtues and how they're generated through education and how they lie in between two extremes. I'm really interested to know if that sort of framework of thinking could be applied to present-day problems. So people debate about the ethics of genetic engineering, for instance. Could we apply Aristotle and his style of thinking to modern-day problems? Yes, I think it requires a certain amount of, of imagination to do so. I mean, he doesn't address that question directly, of course. So think about, for example, one of his virtues, which is the virtue of friendship. Now, this is a very broad virtue. It's broader than our notion of friendship. You can have close friends, but you can also have friends who are people in the marketplace that you deal with on a daily basis and so on. He thinks that friendship is a good in a community. It's something that legislators should aim at. Now, a certain amount of genetic engineering research is going into ways to improve our social relationships with one another. I personally think Aristotle would agree with that. Now, here's another thing. 
Aristotle's ethics begins with an account of human nature and it tries to base the virtues on that. Towards the end of the ethics, he rather looks at things from a different perspective and he says, look, we want to decide what the happiest life is. Who are the happiest individuals? They're the gods. So we should try and make ourselves as godlike as possible, which means going in for as much intellectual or contemplative activity as possible. So there I think he might well have approved of certain moves towards enhancing our own intellectual capacities. Is it right to read Aristotle as just giving us a rule book, teaching us how to live? Yes and no. On the one hand, he says there's no point in doing philosophical ethics unless it has a practical payoff. But on the other hand, he thinks that his book cannot do your ethical thinking for you. You have to have been brought up in the right way. The non-rational part of your soul has to have been habituated to do these virtuous actions or to feel these virtuous feelings. And then what will happen is that you will develop something that he calls practical wisdom or prudence, which is an intellectual virtue, a virtue of the rational part of the soul, which on the basis of these dispositions you already have will enable you to get it right in particular situations. And getting it right involves feeling the right sorts of emotions and acting on them. And seeing what's appropriate in the circumstances, which is not something that he will tell you. He's sensible enough to realise that human life is very complicated and unpredictable and that any rules that he gives you, and he does give us some, some rules of thumb. So, for example, on the whole, he says, you know, if your father is kidnapped by pirates, you should ransom him. <laughs> rather than pay back a debt. That's kind of a helpful rule of thumb. Maybe not always, but in general you should do that. But you will have to have this virtue of practical wisdom if you're going to live the virtuous life. Aristotle was writing in the 4th century BC, and yet, interestingly, some philosophers from the 1970s onwards started turning back to Aristotle to look for guidelines about how we should think about ethics now and this has continued and become known as virtue ethics or virtue theory and become quite a big movement within modern philosophy. I think people are right to think there is a huge amount to learn from Aristotle and some of it had been forgotten. So we're now in this situation where it's thought that there are these three different ways of thinking about ethics, consequentialism, deontology and virtue ethics. I think there's another way of looking at it, which is that the real distinction is between consequentialism and deontology, because if you go back to Aristotle, he explains his doctrine of the mean in terms of the duties that we have to perform certain actions and to feel certain feelings. If you look, for example, at the work of Sir David Ross, who is often said to be a paradigmatic deontologist from the 20th century, he said he was really just offering an Aristotelian account of ethics, and I think he could be said to be right. Now, one of the accusations often made against virtue ethics is that it's empty. But, of course, that's not right because the virtue ethicists will supply their own account of the virtuous person. And that's really what Ross is doing when he comes up with his list of duties. It's what any deontologist is doing when they come up with their own list of duties. In other words, one way to put it is like this. The virtuous action really is the right action. So ethics is is out to discover what the right action is and why it's right and why it's wrong. So when somebody who's a virtue theorist says that telling the truth is a virtuous action in most situations, how can we tell that that's anything more than just a prejudice? Well, it's not something that we can work out using the techniques of science. I think it depends on our own self-understanding 
and the articulation of our own attitude towards ethical judgments. And I think many people, if they reflect on their ethical judgments, feel as if they're stating an objective truth. Now the puzzle is, how can we tell who's got the truth and who hasn't, because there's so much disagreement. I think here Henry Sidgwick, the philosopher from Cambridge at the end of the 19th century, who has much to offer on ethical theory in general, has something very important to tell us, which is that any ethical theory has to rely somewhere on basic principles which aren't inferred from any other principle. And you have to reflect upon the principles you accept, see whether they're consistent with other principles you accept, discuss them with other people and see whether they stand up. So, for example, let's take Kant's example where an axe murderer has come to your door asking you where your friend is hiding in your house. According to Kant, you should tell that person the truth. That is clearly mistaken. You should lie to that axe murderer. So that means that your principle cannot withstand the test of reflection, so you have to come up with some other principle. You've mentioned that it's a criticism of virtue theory that it is, in your view, really just a form of deontology. But deontology might be a perfectly good approach to ethics. I mean, is, is there something about virtue theory that, that means that it, it isn't a good approach to ethics? No, I think not. I think what we have to do is give up on the idea that virtue ethics is giving us a new way to describe what makes actions right and wrong. It's very implausible to say that what makes an action right is that the virtuous person would do it. Virtuous people don't do actions for that reason. They do actions because people need help, let's say, or they've made a promise and they're fulfilling their promise. So we go back to deontology. But nevertheless, thinking about virtue does bring us back to all sorts of issues, many of them there in the ethics of Aristotle, which have been forgotten to some extent. For example, the relationship between virtue and happiness, the relationship between morality and self-interest, how much sacrifice is reasonable. What is a virtue and what are the role of dispositions in the moral life? Does being virtuous matter or is it just a case of doing what's right and doing what's wrong? These sorts of issues, I think, can be illuminated by reflecting upon Aristotle and the nature of the virtuous life. Roger Crisp, thank you very much. Thank you. For more Practical Ethics Bites, go to www.practicalethics.ox.ac.uk. 